Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Summer won't be here for another month and a half, but parents, you know, now is the time to sign up for camps and childcare this summer, and it can be challenging. The pandemic robbed families the opportunity to send kids to sleepaway camps in Connecticut last summer, but this year the state says summer camps with overnight and day programs can open. What will that mean for kids and staff who will still need to follow safety guidelines? The Office of Early Childhood regulates camp and daycare programs in the state, and today we hear from its commissioner, Beth Bide. She'll answer your questions too. Here's the number to call in, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. First joining us now on Zoom is a local summer camp director. Kath Davies directs Camp Hazen, YMCA. That's a summer camp in Chester, Connecticut. Kath, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Good to be with you. So we're all looking forward to summer. Tell me, uh, how are you preparing? And tell us a little bit about your camp in Chester. Sure. So Camp Hazen YMCA is an overnight camp and day camp um, in the Connecticut River Valley. Um, We have about 400 kids overall um, throughout the summer, each session. And then throughout the year on a regular time, we would have schools and universities come out to do team building and such. Um, Certainly, um, we are getting ready for the summer. The guidance from the OEC is imminent. Um, The camp directors are waiting on the edge of their seats for the overnight camp guidance. Um, But that should be out very shortly. And um, we're basically just um, recreating our program and making sure that we can keep kids safe while giving them the good experience that they're looking for. So Commissioner Beth Bai is on with us as well from the Office of Early Childhood. Commissioner Bai, what can you tell us about this guidance that's imminent? Good morning. Uh, how are you, Lucy? Happy to I'm be here. Um, yes, the guidance is, is coming out today, this morning. It, it has been... Um, it has been sent to some programs. It's just making its way out. So it is hot off the presses. Um, we were waiting for CDC to issue their guidance for camps, which they issued at the end of April. And so um, Connecticut will um, be basically saying to camps, uh, you need to follow the CDC guidance about um, camp operations. And Connecticut will maintain right now its mask requirement. Um, so the things that changed compared to last summer are the group size are no longer the group sizes are no longer limited, the cohorts are not required, um, but we are strongly recommending that camps continue to have cohorts of children uh, distance when possible, be outdoors as much as possible, all that good guidance that they followed last year, which those that opened had a very successful. A summer camp experience last year, but this year things are a little different. Their staff will be vaccinated. And um, so we're providing guidance to follow CDC, but also um, to also follow some of the good guidance that's been out there. So Katha, when we hear from Commissioner Bai talk about uh, how they 
the camps must follow CDC uh, guidelines, but there's not going to be any requirement to keep uh, si- group sizes a certain size uh, or um, cohorts. I'm just wondering, you know, how you will move forward just to make sure that both the kids that go to your camp and the staff are safe. Sure. Well, we're definitely looking at a multi-layered approach to be able to minimise exposure and make sure kids can get that camp experience um, whilst staying as safe as they can. So we will be keeping uh, cohorting. And basically, we've changed our programme up from being like an individual choice um, programme to cabin groups really having a group consensus. So two cabin groups of eight kids will come together and they'll develop their schedule together. And that group will be the ones that stay together to do all their programme throughout the time here. Um, So we think that's a a good thing that we're going to keep in place, whether the guidance says to or not. But in addition to that, we have all the traditional stuff. Uh, Kids will be wearing masks. We'll be doing hand washing like we've never done before, keeping as much physical distance as possible. And then also implementing some of the strategies that we had last year for our day camp program in terms of health screening and just doing some recommendations to families about what kind of activities they're doing in the couple of weeks leading up to camp, just to make sure that they're not doing any high risk activities. And Kath, uh, what have you been hearing from parents? I know last year was such a bummer when uh, camps weren't able to have the sleepaway programs or the overnight camps. So have you been getting a lot of input and are there wait lists to do your program? Definitely. Um, kids definitely want camp and I think parents definitely want camp as well. Um, we did run a day camp program last year. So um, our day camp is um, got wait lists on some sessions, but a couple of spaces still there. Um, our overnight camp families, we definitely missed them last year. Um, For a lot of kids, like with graduation and with school, they missed out on their pinnacle year kind of thing. So we have been offering them an opportunity to repeat if they missed a key year last year. Um, But yeah, we're running um, wait lists on a couple of sessions for several age groups. And um, we're still getting lots of friends of other kids that want to come in. You can join our conversation if you have questions about summer camp programs here in Connecticut. The number 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Commissioner Beth Bai is here from the Office of Early Childhood. And you're hearing Kath Davies, Director of Camp Hazen YMCA. This is a summer camp in Chester, Connecticut. So, Kath, uh, I know, I, I think I understand that you're also on a camp advisory group, you know, working with the state, coming up with, uh, you know, operations uh, in this pandemic. And I'm wondering uh, how uh, you and your colleagues have talked with the state about making it work because kids need this kind of uh, summer programming. Yeah, for sure. So I'm on the Youth Camp Safety Advisory Council, um, which is commissioned through the OEC, and we work with Valerie Bryan and her team. Um, there's basically camp representatives from um, different types of camps throughout the state. So whether it's non-for-profit or for-profit day camps, sleep away, um, university-based camps. And really, we've just been um, talking about the need to get some guidance and um, talking about practical ways that we can implement it into camp. Um, I know the OEC and the state has definitely worked a lot with the Connecticut Camp Association as well um, to get their input as well. One thing that's great about camp is all of the outdoor activities, but something that uh, an activity in the summer that you hope that children are able to do and to also learn and that's swimming. So how does that work uh, at a camp? Because you're not able to wear masks. Sure. So there are some exemptions um, to the mask guidance that's currently in place and swimming is definitely one of them. Um, So really, when we're going down for swimming, we're just going to have certain cohorts in certain areas at a time. So they'll just be staying with their group that they've been with the whole time and they'll be able to play and have fun in the water as they would normally do. 
Uh, certainly this year feels different because of the vaccines that are available, especially for uh, individuals 16 and up. And so how has that changed uh, the picture for you when we're looking at safety guidelines and also even attracting staff and feeling comfortable to work at camps this summer, Kath? We were definitely grateful to be able to get in with uh, educators as a childcare um, service to be able to get our vaccinations early. And we've had a good response from our seasonal staff and, and the majority of them are getting vaccinated for the summer. Definitely the whole idea of not having to quarantine if you are exposed is definite definite bonus in terms of staffing and just figuring out that puzzle. Um, so going forward, it definitely um, takes that edge off in terms of the apprehensions that we had last year in terms of working in this kind of environment. Have there been challenges uh, to finding staff that may have been uh, there every summer, but if they're abroad or not able to, to come into the country, has that been challenging? And how do you find people locally? Staffing is definitely a big thing every year when you're trying to hire 150 staff every single summer. It's, it's a big thing. Um, we are blessed to be able to have a big return rate and we've got a great core group of staff that are coming back. Um, but this year, more than ever, the biggest thing that's been hard for us at Hazen is um, the lack of international staff. And we were so apprehensive early on over the winter about what summer might be like. So we didn't hire the number of international staff that we have in the past. Um, so we definitely um, still have spaces out there. So if there's anyone, any university students looking for something to do for this summer, definitely got a good opportunity here at Hazen. Um, but um, Camp Hazen normally has about 30, 35% of our staff um, are international. We really try to get a diverse global community here. So it's definitely going to be a big change for a lot of our families because that's one of the things they expect when they come to us. Commissioner Bai, what are you hearing from uh, camp programs, uh, both day programs and overnight when it comes to staffing? Are there challenges to find people to, to work in these programs? Um, Lucy, yes, uh, there, there are definitely challenges, but uh, the camps are being creative and, and seeking staff and uh, hopefully they will get there. I think, you know, Governor Lamont it has been so clear that he wants kids to have a great summer and uh, have those social experiences. So we're doing everything we can uh, to help camps. And I know you're gonna have Chris Soto on to talk about uh, some grants that they're putting out to help pay for more kids to attend. And OEC is doing things like uh, providing PPE for camps uh, where they can uh, pick up PPE that they may need to reduce some of those other costs uh, to help camps be able to focus on the staffing issue, which is a challenge in childcare and uh, with camps this year. Hi, Kath, I'm wondering if you can add to that uh, when we uh, think about, uh, you know, summer camp, it might be a program that some families feel is out of reach. And I'm wondering how Camp Hazen works uh, to reach uh, all children regardless of their household income. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're a big believer at Camp Hazen YMCA that a family's um, financial situation shouldn't be a reason for them not to have a camp experience. In a traditional year, we give out over $300,000 in financial assistance, and we do that in a few different ways. We partner with a lot of um, social services and schools to be able to get scholarships and stuff, but then also individual families can apply. And we basically have a tier pricing program. So tier one's the actual cost of camp. And if your family can afford that, then that's what we ask you to pay. But then we do have some subsidized rates where it's no questions asked. And they can just use that if it means to take the edge off and that'll help their kid get to camp. And then of course we have the traditional um, sliding scale where people can um, work with our office to be able to get the help they need to make sure their kid can come to camp. 
Again, that's Kath Davies from Camp Hazen YMCA, a summer camp in Chester, Connecticut. Uh, Commissioner Bai, I know because your Office of Early Childhood also uh, licensed uh, daycare providers, and you're also in charge of these uh, these camps, uh, not municipal camps, of course. But I'm wondering for parents who are struggling to find summer programs, is there a website or a central database where they can find programs for their child, depending on where they live? Yes, absolutely, Lucy. Um, 211 Child Care uh, is a place where parents can find camps. Their licensed camps will be listed there. Uh, that's one way. A lot of municipalities have camps as well. But the other good thing about 211 Child Care is that's also a place where families can find out about child care subsidies. Um, camps do provide child care. We learned that last summer. I know in my office, the canceling of camps was one of the most difficult thing uh, for folks in my office. Uh, so calling 211 Child Care, parents can both find out about where there's a camp near them that might meet their needs and also how they can get some financial assistance. And Governor Lamont has been focused on making sure that it's affordable this summer. So um, the state of Connecticut is using some of the federal funds to pay the parent portion of Care for Kids, which is the child care subsidy, uh, to make uh, some summer experiences will be free for parents on Care for Kids because the fees will be paid by the Office of Early Childhood through the federal funding. And in addition, um, camps or summer programs for three and four-year-olds are designed uh, to be free for about 10,000 uh, children, both through a collaboration with the Family Resource Centers that will be offering um, pre-K summer experiences and for children in state-funded school readiness and child daycare programs, the state will be paying the parent fee for the summer to really encourage parents to keep their children in programming this summer um, because so many months of preschool were missed due to the pandemic. Many programs closed, most, most centers and preschools closed while some stayed open. Um, and so to the governor, it was really important that uh, we encourage families to stay and that those that had difficulty paying would get support through Care for Kids or uh, specifically designed summer programs for families with young children. Before we head to break, I wanted to return to Kath Davies, Director of Camp Hayes and YMCA. We talked about uh, vaccinations earlier, Kath, and I'm wondering how camp programs are approaching this for people who are 16 and up. Is it a requirement to get vaccinated to come to a camp? And, and how do you handle that with your staff numbers? Sure. So we have not made it a requirement per se, but we are definitely highly encouraging our staff to do so and um, giving them all the resources and education they need so they can make an informed choice. Um, we've just done a, a bit of a doodle poll and we have found that um, over 90% of our staff are, are, are planning on having it by the summer um, and some are still a little bit on the fence. So it's just a matter of educating those folks to um, see where they end up. Commissioner Bai, did you want to add to that? Is this something that the OEC strongly recommends camps uh, consider where vaccination should be a requirement uh, against COVID? Yeah, we're strongly recommending that people get vaccinated, much like Governor Lamont is doing. It's, it's just important for everyone's health, for community health, and I know the camps are working hard with their staff to get vaccinated. 
We'll continue to talk with Commissioner Beth By with the Office of Early Childhood after the break. But first, I want to thank Kath Davies for joining us, Director of Campaigns and YMCA. I hear the energy in your voice, Kath. I, I bet your summer camp in Chester is pretty fun. <laughs> well, yeah, we, we have a good time, but I'm just excited. Kids need camp more than ever this year, so we're excited to have them outside with some good role models and having a good time. Again, thank you, Kath Davies. Uh, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, and this is Where We Live. Coming up, we're going to talk more broadly about child care. At one point, Connecticut uh, had a gap of 50,000 child care slots. We're also going to learn more about how federal COVID relief money will help daycare providers and families. And you can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. My guest today on Zoom, Beth By, Commissioner of the Connecticut Office of Early Childhood. If you have a question for her related to camps or daycare programs, here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, Commissioner By, when we spoke to you last year, we were talking about Connecticut having a severe child care crisis even before the pandemic. What does it look like today? Yes, Lucy, uh, definitely way, way more programs are open. We're up to about 83% of our pre-pandemic supply of childcare slash preschools that are open in Connecticut. Uh, so that's a big change. Um, I think there's still some challenges with enrollment for some programs as parents have been hesitant to send children back. So they continue to really um, face some struggles financially and uh, we're about to release $120 million in stabilization funds to all licensed programs in Connecticut. Uh, we had the webinar last week with the field, and uh, that's to help with some of these huge revenue losses that they faced over the past year, because certainly we see a recovery in Connecticut right now, and we need childcare in place for families to get back to work. 120 million sounds like a lot, but also probably just a bridge <laughs> to help uh, exactly. uh, these, these daycare providers. Exactly. Um, it's probably between 20 and 25% of their operating budget for the year. And certainly many of them uh, lost way more than 25% of their revenue this year. But uh, thanks to Rosa DeLauro and our whole delegation and, and President Biden, um, they recognize that childcare, much like the airlines and the restaurant industry um, needed uh, supports and childcare is really infrastructure for our economy and our work. That's certainly something that was, uh, uh, that everyone realized I think in the pandemic for those who hadn't really thought about how childcare is so essential, but let's talk more about the people that are providing care to our children. They work long hours. They're not compensated very much. Uh, I saw the median hourly pay from the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, last year for childcare worker was $12, $12 commissioner by, they make less than yeah. housekeepers or parking attendants or even telemarketers according to the 19th. And so how do we boost the pay? Because I know parents who are listening are thinking, we pay so much in childcare, but the people doing the work aren't getting much at all. 
Yes, that that is the that's the challenge, Lucy. I don't know if you know this, but I got involved in public policy because I was a child care director, and I had staff just leaving all the time, and my best staff leaving, and so I got involved with a group called Worthy Wages almost 30 years ago now in Stanford um, to deal with this challenge that we're still really dealing with in Connecticut and across this country. It's women's work from women's work, right? Um, so. Mm-hmm. Parents can only pay so much um, and make it worth it for them to go to work. Um, so we are seeing some real recognition of this. Um, if you listen to President Biden's talk and when I had a chance to meet with the vice president, we talked about wages of childcare workers as a big problem. And uh, we talked about camps having challenges with staffing. Well, right now childcare programs are having huge problems with staffing and as the economy heats up, that'll get even harder. Um, So we are doing a couple things now. One is that um, of the $120 million it's going out to programs, we've said programs need to commit that 25% of the funds that they receive will go to staff in the form of bonuses or perhaps to help pay their healthcare premium, their portion or retirement um, or so, because it's it's a one-time payment but that some of these funds uh, get right to the people doing the work. And then um, as we look at universal childcare and universal preschool as federal proposals, we're looking for ways in Connecticut to make sure that um, we have clear guidance for programs on what are appropriate wages. And in the president's plan, um, they said that states will be expected to reimburse teachers of early childhood as at the level of public school teachers, which would be a huge change. Um, So we'll wait to see what the federal guidelines are and the rules are. Um, Governor Lamont has committed to increasing the pay that Care for Kids pays to accredited programs in the state, family child care and centers that are accredited. Um, The state will recognize that quality standard by significantly increasing the funds of $26 million over two years. Uh, to help that, and that will help with wages. But you have to get at the base. How do you support the base so that programs can give teachers increases that they can afford in a sustainable way? You could join our conversation with Commissioner By 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Commissioner By, when we hear about uh, programs not only to help daycare providers, but also the staff, and then earlier you talked about subsidies for parents uh, to help them afford child care. Uh, Caroline tweeted at us, in my town, there are limited options for camps with before and after care. A camp from nine to four can be difficult for working parents who commute. I hope some federal funds can be used towards making camp more accessible to kids of working parents, which is a great point. <laughs> so tell us you know, how your office works with municipal um, towns and cities with providing this kind of uh, programming, because otherwise you can't make it work. You can't get your kid to, to camp. Yes, it's very difficult uh, to make it work for families uh, when they're working full time. Um, once again, probably the best uh, effort toward helping parents that need that extended care is with Care for Kids and uh, family child care where it's accessible in and around the camps who tend to have more flexible schedules. Um, so that, you know, that's one way. I know we're also working on with our programs uh, this summer for the three and four year olds with the FRCs, uh, providing transportation for, for children as needed. That, and that helps if parents 
have a second place for their children to go after camp to at least get them there. But this is an ongoing challenge that, you know, the school day, school year programs uh, are not necessarily meeting the needs of families. And it's why as we look to expand childcare in Connecticut with federal funds, that we've got to look at a system that meets uh, the needs of working families, as well as the educational needs of children. Because I think one thing we learned in the pandemic, which I'll say wherever I go, early childhood education is childcare. Childcare is early childhood education. You know, kids are learning all the time. Even when the kids weren't in school, people say learning loss. Well, kids were learning things at that time. Um, and so we've got to make sure the settings for our kids are high quality and that um, we also support families because it really, it can't be infrastructure to the workforce if it doesn't meet the needs of the workforce. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677. If you have a question about daycare programs or camp programs this summer, Abby's calling in from Griswold. Abby, can you hear me? Yes. Go ahead, Abby. Hi, Beth. It's Abby Gloss. I hope you remember me. We've spoken in the past. Oh, um, Abby, so my- I'm so glad to hear your voice. Thank you. I was excited to hear you this morning. But my question is... Um, We had a summer camp program in our town where the application for assistance went through a third party and expired at the end of April. However, I'm listening to you now this morning and I'm realizing it sounds like there's a lot more funds available and would the limited number of spots for that help? increase and would a deadline possibly change if it was increased? Uh, yes, Abby, it's a great question. Um, another initiative that, that was announced last week by Governor Lamont is that Care for Kids will be extended uh, to families that make between uh, 60 and 65 percent of the state median income, which is, you know, the previous was was 50 percent. And so um, that means more families will be eligible for help uh, and the Care for Kids can apply for summer camp because camp is childcare. Um, so uh, I encourage you and others listening to call 211 Childcare uh, to ask about signing up for childcare help this summer and camp help this summer. Again, you can join us if you have a question for Commissioner Beth Bai, who leads the Office of Early Childhood. This agency licenses daycare programs as well as uh, summer camp programs in our state. The number 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR or share a comment on our Facebook page. You can also find us on Twitter at where we live. You know, earlier, Commissioner Bai, you mentioned uh, that some parents were keeping their kids home in this pandemic. And of course, that impacts daycare providers when they don't have children enrolled. But I wonder if you could talk more about, you know, what you have learned uh, through the child care program over the last year in terms of safety guidelines and where things stand, where are we hearing that providers are getting vaccinated? Um, yes, Lucy, we are hearing providers, uh, child care providers have been on the front lines and the governor wants to recognize that by opening up vaccines to them um, along with the public school teacher so that uh, child care can continue and be there for families. And indeed, um, you know, tens of thousands took us up on the vaccine clinics specifically for child care providers. And we also worked um, to have uh, 
special sort of leader workshops uh, with experts to answer questions about vaccines to help with some of the hesitancy that we were seeing out there. And that seemed to have a good impact as well. So we are seeing uh, that childcare providers are getting vaccinated. And, you know, so many did put themselves on the front lines at the height of the pandemic. Um, so we want to recognize them. Uh, so to give, to allow them to get vaccinated. Certainly it's not 100%, but it's a very high percentage. That's interesting that uh, you were hearing about hesitancy. So when you have these, com you and your staff have these conversations with daycare providers, you know, what are their questions about the vaccine and, and how do you work to raise awareness about this vaccine and uh, the advantages of getting vaccinated? Yes. Um, well, I was really grateful for the partnership of SEIU and uh, our staff family child care networks because we were finding that there was a significant amount of misinformation out there about what could happen if folks got uh, vaccines. So um, we brought in the Department of Public Health helped and we spent an hour on an evening Zoom call answering all the questions of folks who were just identified as leaders um, within either the union or within their family child care network. And um, they had their questions answered. And then on other calls, they were able to share the information and encourage vaccination. So it really was, you know, making sure that the peers understood the advantages. And it was really a peer-to-peer -peer work that went on uh, to get folks to um, be vaccinated. But there were questions about, you know, what would happen to your fertility, about, you know, really uh, items that just didn't have any basis in science, but that had really taken off among uh, certain groups uh, of childcare providers that we want to be sure to um, put out the actual information related to the safety of the mm -hmm. vaccine. I know that uh, over the last year, the state has also uh, relied on home daycares, uh, not just the private uh, daycare centers that we might have uh, in certain communities. And I'm wondering, you know, how you have conversations with uh, home daycare providers about safety guidelines and even the idea of wearing a mask if it's their home, uh, you know, what what are the guidelines and, and what's being followed? Yeah, that's a great question. I can't say enough for how family child care stepped up for families and for our state and our businesses um, at this time. Um, they almost 70% of, of those programs stayed open compared with less than 30% of center-based programs and I think families felt more comfortable sending their children to small settings, which makes a lot of sense if you follow the science. Um, they are following all the guidelines that child care centers are following, you know, cohorting, masking, although they don't have to cohort much because their maximum group size is nine, but um, hand washing, um, they were incredibly diligent, uh, took us up on every offer of PPE and other um, either funding or, or materials that we were able to supply um, but I think the great lesson in Connecticut and across the country is that family child care is a key part of our, our child care infrastructure and really economic development because these are small businesses in our communities and very often they have more flexibility with hours and days and as parents are telecommuting more now and trying to figure out other options, uh, family child care has been there and shown its incredible utility. And um, thanks to funding from 4CT in Connecticut, we were able to go from having five networks that were supporting family child care to having 12 that were now extending to 14. 
So there are 14 networks throughout the state that are there to help family child care homes um, with things like quality, health and safety, the Connecticut Nurses Association staffed a phone line for us throughout the pandemic to answer questions on the spot for family child care providers in English and Spanish. Um, so um, this was a great lesson. We knew they were important. Um, always knew family child care was an important part of the system, but I think we're going to see more and more of it um, as a choice for families. And we're supporting the quality as much as we can. And, and they, they, already, they already have a lot of high quality activities going on in family child care programs, much like centers. So. You're hearing Commissioner Beth Bai of the Connecticut Office of Early Childhood here on Where We Live. You know, coming up, we've been focusing on summer camps and also child care broadly, but there are specific summer opportunities for public school students that will be funded through this federal COVID relief money. We're going to hear about that through the Department of Education in our state. And we, you, if you have a question, too, you can also join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. My guest today on Zoom, Beth Bai, Commissioner of the Connecticut Office of Early Childhood. Uh, in just a couple minutes, we're going to learn more about some summer enrichment programs through the State Department of Education. But Commissioner Bai, we got a question from Stephen on Facebook who wanted to know why municipal-run camps um, don't have to comply with the same requirements not-for-profit and for-profit camps are required to meet. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, there is an exemption in the statute uh, that exempts uh, schools and municipalities uh, from licensing. And I know that's something that the Camp Association has been working with the legislature on uh, because their feeling is that um, all programs should have to meet the health and safety criteria uh, that the private camps are meeting. So um, it's just the way the law is in Connecticut that uh, those municipal and school-based ones are exempt from licensing. Mm. Would you like to see that across the board, Commissioner By? Um, I, I, I would like to see that because I do think, you know, fair is fair, and, and we do think our safety inspections are really important um, for, uh, for camps. So um, certainly I would, but it's, you know, it's really a legislative matter at this point, and, and we enforce uh, the licensing requirements on the programs in our purview. We've been talking about programs for kids this summer. The state has put aside about $11 million in federal stimulus money to support summer enrichment programs to explain what that all means. Joining us now is Chris Soto, Director of Innovation and Partnerships at the Connecticut State Department of Education. Chris, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy, and good morning, Commissioner. <laughs> it's hard to keep track of all of the federal COVID relief money and where it's going, but I understand that the state has set aside some money specifically to make sure that all students can access some type of summer camp experience. So what does that mean exactly and who's eligible? Yeah, thank you. Um, so this, this came about from um, the leadership in Washington and, and President Biden to pass the American Rescue Plan. 
And with that came about $1.1 billion uh, to the state, specifically um, for school districts. But the state has a set aside of about $110 million. And uh, thanks to also Senator Murphy's leadership, really focused on ensuring there were set asides for uh, summer enrichment programs, for after school programs, and for interventions that address learning loss. And so, as you talked about, we're, we're really focused on the summer enrichment piece right now because we know that the timeline is so short. Um, and so there was $11 million part of that set aside that we as a department are deploying out to communities. And what that looks like is, is a two-prong approach. And so, you know, the governor and the commissioner have been adamant in ensuring that, that students this summer have a fun summer of learning every day and everywhere. And so uh, with that said, we want to make sure that, that students and programs, uh, maybe programs that can expand access, maybe they can offer scholarships uh, to families, or maybe transportation was a barrier um, and, and programs can now pay for transportation to get students to programs. Or maybe even, you know, COVID prevented them from operating. And so this, inf this infusion of funds is going to help them operate the summer. And so that's what we're calling our expansion grants. These are for, you know, locally based locally focused programs that are looking to do some expansion or subsidized costs for families. Then, you know, the governor and commissioner have also, you know, really encouraged us to be bold and innovative. And so we're looking at programs that maybe have state or regional scale, right? We, we have to take control of this moment. We cannot lose this moment. And if we're just going to go back to doing a summer as we did, whether it was in 2019 or before, then we're really missing this opportunity because I think we believe that there's no other moment in our generation um, where we're going to see this influx of funds. So we have to take Chris, advantage of that. Uh, Chris, so when we talk about the, the grant money, is this going to go to community organizations like the Y or the Boys and Girls Club versus school districts? Exactly. Yes. So that's a great distinction. And so, you know, typically we, we, fund, we as an agency fund school districts. And, and what's different about this is now we're going to essentially be granting to the local programs, as you said, you know, your boys and girls clubs, your YMCAs. Now, you know, just to back up for a second, school districts um, through the federal funds that they're getting can use um, their funds for summer enrichment. So it's not like it's, it's, it's not, you know, one or the other. Um, we're really looking for communities to think boldly on how they can partner with their district. So how, how does that local community program partner with the school district and even the municipality to braid this funding to really take advantage of all the resources that are out there? You know, I had a conversation with uh, Senator Doug McCrory, uh, I guess a month or so ago, here on where we live, and we talked about uh, learning loss and uh, the importance of children uh, to get the support they need. But when we think about like summer learning programs, like it almost seems like you know kids need time to have fun and not be thinking about math and and English, even if they're falling behind. And so I'm wondering how with this program it'll strike a balance so that you have lower income children that are also having fun this summer and not just, uh, you know, enrichment programs to, to help with the learning loss too. No, absolutely. We don't want to, we, we do not want to create a summer where, where there's two different experiences. And, you know, so we sent out a survey early on as we started this work to providers uh, and families and said, you know, what's the most important thing for students this summer? And the number one word that came back was fun. Fun was um, overwhelmingly the approach that we want to take. And, and, you know, we can have fun and have purposeful play. Um, and we know that from the research, we know that students are learning when they are having fun. 
And so obviously school districts are going to identify students who need extra academic enrichment. But at the same time, again, these expansion grants that we're putting out there are for, you know, those local programs to work with the school district. So if a school district has a class, you know, from eight to 12, well, how does that, you know, that, that rec program or that YMCA come in in the afternoon and really give some meaningful and purposeful play for the afternoon for the students? Uh, Chris, you made a point to say that the set-aside money will be helping community organizations, but school districts can certainly also uh, contribute to these uh, summer programs. I'm looking at a, a headline in The Current by Rebecca Lorry. Hartford Schools hope to enroll about 10,000 academically struggling students in expanded summer learning and enrichment programs. So is that what you're talking about, that the city of Hartford School District is also going to be allocating this COVID relief money that they've received to add to the programming that's available? Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. I mean, in, there was a, a previous relief package just for schools, um, which was about $440 million. And so even if school districts allotted 1% we'd have 4.3 million in the system um, that we can leverage to give students an awesome summer. And so for the, for the community organizations who might be listening, so what are the deadlines to get this money? Have they already passed? <laughs> no, not at all. So we, we, we launched the application last week and, and they'll, they'll be due May 10th, next Monday. And then we plan to turn those applications around very quickly because we know, um, you know, obviously they're planning. And so those awards will be turned around two weeks after that, May 24th. Commissioner Bai, you're still with us. I'm wondering if you can uh, add your thoughts about uh, these programs that are coming online and the, the kind of programming that children need. Yes, I love, I love how Chris stressed uh, that kids are learning when they're playing. And, and I really appreciated your question. And, and the governor has been really clear on this too, you know, that, that kids need social emotional supports, and they can be learning at the same time. And that's been an important focus here, even with, I know Chris has done some work with the museums in Connecticut and making sure there's enrichment. And, and we've done the same thing with our summer programming that we're adding funds for enrichment experiences um, so that kids can have fun and learn together. This is, I think, uh, you know, Lucy, it's funny, we ask these questions now about summer and everyone recognizes the kids need fun too. But that's really true always. I mean, engagement is what we're about. And I know that Commissioner Russell Tucker and Chris and the team have really been thinking beyond the summer too, is what can we do uh, so that we can learn some lessons from COVID about how we can engage students and make learning more engaging and fun. Um, so I know our superintendents are really thinking about this too, because the vital role that schools play in children's social emotional wellness has never been more clear than it is among parents and schools right now. Chris Soto, Commissioner Bai mentioned uh, partnering with museums. Uh, so I thought I saw something last week, uh, refresh my memory, where kids can go into museums free this summer? Yes, that's, that's definitely the intention. We're really excited about that announcement. And so the idea is that, you know, we have so many cultural attractions here in the state, and we don't wanna limit that, um, be, whether it's because of means, um, and again, really give students a fun summer. And so uh, we've ha we have five of the, the biggest in our state that have signed on and we're certainly um, kind of recruiting all the other museums and cultural attractions in the state to basically offer free admission to, to young people and students uh, throughout the summer. 
That's good to hear. You're also hearing Chris Soto here on Where We Live, Director of Innovation and Partnerships at the Connecticut State Department of Education. We've been talking a lot about uh, the federal money, and, and, and Commissioner Bai, I wanted to just uh, flag when we, we hear President Biden proposing American Families Plan calling for free universal pre-K. I wonder if you can talk about this approach and what this will mean for uh, children to get more access to preschool and pre-K in our state. Yes, I, I think, you know, parents across Connecticut and the country are celebrating with the idea and want to know when's it coming. That's what we're hearing. Um, I think that, you know, for a long time, politicians have been saying early investments have the best return on investment, and then we go on and don't make those investments. And so um, I think it's incredible that President Biden um, is is looking at universal childcare and universal preschool. I think we have to be cautious, and I've been able to talk with uh Congresswoman DeLauro about this, um, that the systems work together because we have a fragile childcare infrastructure that relies on preschoolers to make their bottom line work. And so I'm imagining um, a public private system um, where there will certainly be significant public school participation like there is now and maybe even larger, but that uh, our private providers also will have preschoolers. And I liked how they said that it will be built in partnership with the states uh, because Connecticut already has local school readiness councils uh, that can help us build the systems that work in their region and town. Uh, for example, in Eastern Connecticut, we tend to have more public school preschool than in other parts of the state. And so it just, you know, we don't know exactly what it's gonna look like, but we are talking with Secretary Cardona and Congresswoman DeLauro about how do we build this so it works for families and the workforce and works for kids' education. But I don't think there's a better investment we could make as a nation when we compare ourselves to other countries. We are way behind when it comes to those early investments that have the biggest return for families and for our nation as well, for our economy. Uh, before we run out of time, Chris Soto, I wanted to go back to you. Um, I didn't want to minimize the fact that learning loss is a, a real challenge and a reality. And when we think about how the Department of Ed uh, provides guidance to school districts who are seeing children falling behind, you know, what is uh, your recommendation in terms of, of the idea of summer school? So it's just incorporating both the enrichment as well as uh, um, some of the, the, the learning uh, to help them so that there's not a big gap come September. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's really about a holistic approach, but also we, we don't know everything, right? You know, we wanted to ensure that all voices were heard when we started thinking about what learning recovery looked like. And that's why we launched a group called Accelerate CT um, that was focused on, you know, how do we, re, you know, how do we approach the, the school year coming up um, and use the summer as that bridge? And so, you know, we have, you know, different pillars within Accelerate CT looking at learning recovery, looking at social emotional health, looking at those family connections um, and community partnerships that exist. And then of course the digital divide, right? So those are all key components that we need to be kind of thinking about uh, as we enter the next school year. And that's what we're doing through Accelerate CT. You've been hearing Chris Soto here on Where We Live, Director of Innovation and Partnerships at the Connecticut State Department of Education. Chris, thanks for coming on to, to describe the, the summer enrichment programs and what it means. We appreciate it. Thank you, Lucy. Also with us, Commissioner Beth Bai, Connecticut Office of Early Childhood. Commissioner Bai, we thank you for your time today and to help answer our listener questions as well. Thanks so much, Lucy.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, ever wonder why you're required to learn algebra but not how to balance a checkbook or file your taxes? On the next Where We Live, we talk about financial literacy. Personal finance and accounting are offered as electives in many high schools, but should they be required for graduation? That conversation tomorrow. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer producer is Kat Pastor. On the phones today was Tess Terrible. We hope you're back tomorrow with us. Thanks for listening.